Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome again to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. And how are you doing this this evening, Francis? I'm doing well. I feel so blessed to be here and have a beautiful blue sky. And we even have green grass here in Dayton now. Yeah, well, after a couple of days of rain over the weekend, which we desperately needed. Yeah, I've been praying to Elijah for that rain. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good choice, actually. Yes. Yeah. Well, he has answered your prayer because we've finally gotten a couple of days of it. I think that the farmers would wish that we still had a little bit more. Uh, and I pray that will continue, but um, things so certainly are getting better. Yeah, let's ask all our in- listeners to beseech Elijah for that rain. Absolutely. Uh, across the country, in fact, we know we're suffering all the way uh, from the West Coast and certainly through the Midwest into the East uh, with lack of rain this summer. So how are you doing, Mark? You always ask me that question. I never get to ask you. <laughs> oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> no, I'm doing fine. Uh, my uh, family's away this weekend. This past weekend haven't returned yet. Uh, so I'm looking forward to their coming back. They're on a little family vacation that I wasn't able to participate in this uh, this time. But um, happy to be here and able to do our program. There would have been a conflict otherwise. So uh, great to be with you. Now, this evening we're going to finish up what we actually began in a previous program on St. Kalinowski, St. Raphael Kalinowski, and uh, talk a little bit about some areas that we didn't quite get to address. He has uh, despite the fact that the book we drew from is fairly small, he has a rich spirituality and a great deal to share with us. But uh, we're also wanting to talk a little bit um, in this particular program about the evangelical councils, uh, the importance of the evangelical councils in our life, their importance to Carmel, and tie that to the feast that we're celebrating today, which is the Feast of the Transfiguration. So we'll cover all that in an hour, if we're lucky. Uh, <laughs> but let's begin, as we do each week, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come by way of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your dearly beloved spouse. We adore you, we praise you, we bless you, and we thank you. We humbly thank you for the gift of the most pure Virgin Mary. By her purity, inflame our hearts and our inmost beings with the fire of your divine love. Purify our hearts from all blemish of sin, that we may serve you with chaste bodies and pure minds. Jesus, almighty King of kings, you who obeyed your Father to the end, teach us the meaning of obedience and grant us the grace to live a life of obedience to you. Bless me with strength and courage to obey, that my soul may subdue both my nature and my spirit, blending them as a fair, aromatic bloom. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us, for we are nothing without you. Without you, we can do nothing. We surrender all to you that we may be in you and do all through you. Empty us of ourselves that we may be filled with you. Through chastity, let us find you, Lord. Through poverty, let us walk closely with you, Lord. Through obedience, may we never leave you, Lord. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Francis, where do you want to begin? It's a conversation, so we can go in any direction that we want. Uh, I do want to cover um, St. Kalinowski's reflections on Mary, which I think were um, fairly powerful. Uh, And we didn't get a chance to cover that in our first program on him. Um, And I do want to talk just a little bit about his um, role in um, an effort to unify the Eastern churches with Rome. Uh, He, of course, um, 
hailed from Poland but spent a good deal of his life in Russia and so was familiar with the Orthodox tradition and um, had built a number of relationships there. And so he sat in the centerpiece of the, uh, in the, in the very center of the efforts to unify the churches. Uh, now this is, of course, some number of years ago, and some progress has been made since then, but he really was a prophet of that. But where would you like to begin? With Mary. Of course. <laughs> Mary, always, and in everything. Just like St. Raphael Kalinowski has said, Mary, always, and in everything. Um, that was his maxim, um, because he emphasizes Mary's greatness as the mother of Christ and the supereminent member uh, and mother of the church. And so he... His spirituality is just exuding Mary, because through Mary, um, we are led to Jesus by living and working in the church and through his mystical body. So, um, you know, we start with his conversion um, in college. Um, he had read a devout book, and I don't know what book that was. It wasn't listed, and I'm so curious as to know what book that was. But he started to ponder um the religious principles that he had been brought up with and he had a sense of mary and her obedience to christ and his her fiat and so um it was through christ in this sacramental ministry of the church that he returns and he goes to confession which we had talked a great deal last um last uh series um last monday night about so he comes to the church through mary and then, of course, we know he enters Carmel through Mary, because Carmel is all of Mary. And what is the goal of Carmel? It is to serve Christ more closely and work for unity of the church, which plays into what you were talking about, the unity of the church. Yeah, one other um, point, and I know there are a couple of um, uh, particular issues you want to raise with regard to his devotion to the Blessed Mother, but uh, he was a great champion also of the scapula, wasn't he? And, yes. And we've talked about the scapula on this program. We've done uh, a mini-series, if you will, on the scapula. Now tell uh, the listeners real quick what the brown scapula is. The brown scapula, of course, was um, given to St. Simon Stock. Uh, at a time when the order had um, transitioned back uh, to Europe, um, had begun that difficult transition back to Europe out of the Holy Land where they had um, um, come under a significant uh, attack from, um, you know, a, a great deal of, um, of fighting that was going on in and around the Holy Cities and, of course, on the mountains and Mount Carmel was involved in that. And so without going into the long history, the order slowly began to migrate back to Europe. Uh, it, it came under some very difficult times, which are um, explained in the, the particular program we did on the history of the order. But the scapula was given to St. Simon Stock, and, of course, there were a number of promises associated with it, which I don't want to get into because they bear some explanation. But suffice to say that the scapula, which is very popular today, in fact, that has gone through a... a um, back and forth a series of uh, phases of popularity, and it happens to be particularly popular right now. I think it's very prolific. Uh, but what it basically says, uh, the, the uh, scapula, the wearing of the scapula, is this is the house that I belong to. This represents, and, and there's sort of a uh, medieval um, a component to it, that when you worked in the vineyards of a particular estate, you wore the the covering, if you will, the shield that represented that estate. And that's what the scapula is in large measure. It says, we belong to Mary's family. And there 
are three promises associated with that. Of course, we are a member of her family. We have all the rights that um, that uh, stem from that participation. And in a very legal uh, way, we claim her um, coverage, her security, her protection. Uh, and those three elements come from the history of our order. And then physically, what it looks like is two pieces of brown cloth, uh, usually wool, um, although now it's more or less brown linen sometimes mm-hmm. because it's cheaper than wool. Wool used to be cheaper. And there are two strings attached mm-hmm. so that it goes over the shoulders. So uh, one part, one rectangular cloth is on the front and one is on the back. And this is a sign of our devotion to Mary, not to, um, not to pray to her like a god, but as the mother of God, right. who is the greatest intercessor and, um, which leads us to this next point of uh, St. Raphael Kalinowski's, um, his love for her. He said that the Blessed Mother was the book where the eternal word of God, Christ the Lord, is read to the world. I really like that. So when you look at Mary, um, it will help you to know Christ. And if we live in imitation of Mary, we will live in allegiance to Christ, and we will learn to love Christ, and we will ponder Christ as Mary did. Well, she was the first apostle. We know that. Uh, she was the Christ bearer, and we are all called to be Christ bearers. Um, she lived a perfect life of silence. And again, we've covered this so many times in this program, but um, this idea of silence is not simply the absence of sound. It is the silence of the heart. That's the most difficult thing. Uh, and of course, Mary, we know, pondered all of these aspects of her life in her heart, which means everything was viewed through the lens of her love and her devotion to our Lord and Savior. And that's what is really meant by silence of the heart. We have to um, understand, and we'll come into it this evening as we talk about the evangelical councils, all of what the Lord gifted to us in grace, uh, this idea of silence, this idea of uh, being Christ-bearers, the evangelical councils themselves. There is a material element to it to help us understand and grasp it, but there's a mystical element to it as well that we have to practice uh, in order to experience and in order to uh, sort of unpack the real meaning of Mary's uh, role as model, we have to spend time with it. We can't just sort of, you know, flippantly say, oh, yes, Mary, she was the mother of God and she was a great person and she, you know, prayed and she lived an interior life and she died in the order of sanctity. Therefore, the, she's our model. It's, of course, much deeper than that. Right. Unless we ponder it, we, we won't get it. It'll just be kind of dry fact and that's it. So you, you have to take time to ponder these things. Well, um, another point on Mary for St. Raphael Kalinowski um, was his uh, status as a brother or, and in my case, would be sister of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Order of Carmel. Because remember, at the beginning of Carmelite's roots, they were the brothers of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And even those who uh, are just affiliated through a confraternity of the Brown Scapular, again, we are brothers and sisters of the Blessed Mother. And so it's not just loving her, but also in attending to her affairs, doing what she would want, um, seeing in her the Cure guide to Christ, and um, accept, there was three points he said: accepting and accomplishing like her the will of God, which would be contemplating and preaching His Word made flesh in Christ Jesus, who's the author of our salvation, of which the Church is now the sacrament. 
The second point was spiritually directing the souls of his sisters and brothers, pointing out to them the road of to Jesus through Mary or to Jesus with Mary and taking as a base the common faith of the church in her role as mediatrix of grace until all of the old man is stripped off and they put on the armor of the new man. And, of course, we know he was well known for being a confessor in the sacrament of reconciliation. And then, of course, as Mark mentioned, propagating the scapular devotion, which is the sign of salvation and the mother's gift, a sacramental of the church that helps sanctify every moment of life and attain the salvation accomplished by Christ. And it is an easy practice to take up. So I invite all of our listeners to look into wearing the brown scapular. It, it is an easy practice to take up. It is a difficult practice to live out. Is but, that fair? <laughs> but when you put it on, you've got Mary in a special way helping you as mother you and sister. You do. I, I am always... Um, uh, cautious, though, that we have to... I, I encourage people to read the Catechism of the Scapula. It's a separate individual document. And and understand what the wearing of the scapula calls us to. And, of course, uh, we certainly don it and, and uh, gain Mary's protection and her guidance and, and her intercession and so forth. But we are called to something, too. It isn't simply a matter of putting that material garment over our shoulders, but it's putting on... Um, the the very uh, uh, model which Mary is of Christ and beginning to live out that life again we'll speak about that with regard to the evangelical councils but um, did you want to say anything more do we want to talk well, about unity well we're going to transition right into unity because um, our saint was convinced that unity between the church and the orthodox churches could be affected through Marian devotion so unity through Mary I love that yeah, Mary, of course, is so well um, appreciated and understood in the Orthodox tradition, even, frankly, in the Middle East and some of uh, um, uh, the Muslim, um, uh, you know, understanding of her and her role. Uh, she really is the great unifier. She's the model of, of unity in the church. Uh, um, none of the various... Uh, uh, sects that approach Christ seem to have a great deal of struggle with Mary, except perhaps in uh, in our own uh, country, uh, some faiths who wrestle with uh, the, what they perceive to be, or I think misperceived to be, Catholic devotion to Mary um, as something um, akin to the devotion that we have to Christ. Of course, they're different. She is a co-redemptrix. She is uh, uh, a mediatrix of all graces. We understand that, and we won't do a, a program tonight on Mary. We've done a couple, and we should perhaps uh, reinvestigate those terms. But we put her in her proper role, which is a significant role, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, likewise, see her playing a very significant role in the history of salvation. And so launching from that, um, St. Kalinowski was able to play a significant role in articulating uh, the benefit and what could come from the unity brought about in the churches. And this is not the dismantling of either uh, uh, track, if you will, either church, but but simply uh, capitalizing on what we do agree upon and beginning with Mary as a launching pad. And, of course, he experienced this division in his youth and his family constantly prayed for the unity. And in his memoirs, he laments this division, which in a letter he called the division being the greatest enemy of society 
And so the safest way to find peace is precisely in union. So when you think about that, um, look at when your own family is torn apart. That's division. So even in our own families, in our own homes, we want unity. We want the peace that brings unity of heart. Yeah, I have great appreciation for the Eastern Church. I've read a great uh, deal of the literature from both Greek uh, Orthodox as well as the Russian Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox uh, churches, and I have a great deal of appreciation, as does Rome, for what the Eastern churches have taught us, um, most especially in the area of prayer. You know, Carmel somewhat uniquely, and again, maybe another program, though not one we're going to cover this evening, but Carmel in many ways, very uniquely stands almost with a foot in both camps because we've retained the um, devotion and appreciation for deep contemplative prayer, perhaps, and I don't mean to be contentious about this, but perhaps better than many of the other orders whose charisms may be different. Our charism is contemplative prayer, uh, active contemplation, right? So we combine uh, sort of the Rome um, active intervention in the world with the Eastern Orthodox, which is much more about withdrawing from the world and living that deep interior life. Carmel really combines that in a very special way, and I think Kalinowski was drawn to that. St. Kalinowski was very much drawn to that, but he certainly understood the Eastern Church. He'd spent time in Russia. He'd gone to school in Russia. He witnessed the um, the dismantling of the Eastern Orthodox Church in many respects under Russian uh, rule, let's call it what it was, um, and, and the affronts to the Eastern Church. And so he had a, a deep and abiding appreciation for uh, reestablishing um, the infrastructure around that as much as he did around uh, reestablishing Carmel in Poland, which was a significant uh, role that he also played. And, and your point about unity in the family, I think, is important. And quite frankly, it will lead us to the latter part of the program. But this idea of union and unity goes right to the human person, doesn't it? Yes, Brother it Lawrence does. talks about this. He says, we must be a whole person. We must reunify spirit and the material person. That part of what's happened to us as a result of the incidents in the garden was this internal disunity uh, in our very nature. You know, we were sort of, we're sort of broken and we're now misguided and we're misdirected because we're not allowing the voice uh, of the transfigured Lord who lives within us uh, to guide us. So this idea of unity is pertinent to the individual. It's pertinent to the family and in the life and times of St. Kalinowski, very pertinent to the churches as a whole. And, you know, you bring up Brother Lawrence, and I couldn't help but think this today, um, that he shared something with uh, St. Kalinowski that was special, and that was, you know, living in the military life mm-hmm. and and how that experience changed their life. And so that brought me to the thinking of a contemporary person um, who lived a very severe imprisonment, uh, he was a POW uh, during the Vietnam era. His name is Captain Guy uh, Gruders. I hope I said that correctly. He has a website about his experience. He's a Catholic speaker. And I heard him once um, speak in this area. It was an amazing story about his imprisonment and the harshness of it. And, of course, I'm thinking of Brother uh, Lawrence and, um, of course, now St. Raphael Kalinowski and, and his experience in Siberia. Siberia right. Yes. And um, so it, 
but I'm remembering the harshness of his story. But he was basically uh, the talk he gave to us talked about the importance of prayer and how prayer is what helped him overcome his hatred for his enemies. And when he began to forgive and, and love them in Christ, how his own spirit began to grow. Otherwise, he was dying in himself because of the anger that he had within him. And so, you know, you and I had talked about, well, what's the unwritten story about that prison in Siberia? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'd like to read that because there's such a transformation. And, of course, St. John of the Cross, our Holy Father in Carmel, you know, here he is in this little, you know, bitty room imprisoned by his own uh, Carmelite family because of so gross misunderstandings. And yet this was some of the greatest times of his life as he prayed so devoutly and, you know, came up with these uh, great writings that he left for us. We should offer that insight to our listening audience here because of what you just said. When we find ourselves, have any of us ever found ourselves uttering these words, oh, I feel so trapped? (laughs) (laughs) Have we ever said that? Well, we've just now uh, cited four separate individuals, three who uh, we know are Carmelites and, and the fourth is... Uh, someone who spent time in the military, spent time in a prisoner of war camp, and yet contends that this is where he learned how to pray. Um, if you find yourself uttering that word, that phrase, boy, I feel so trapped, uh, step back for a second and say, maybe that's exactly where the Lord wants me to be right now. Maybe that's exactly um, you know, where I'm going to learn uh, how to pray in those moments when I feel most restrained, most constricted, most um, trapped. Um, for Kolonoski, for St. John of the Cross, um, for Brother Lawrence, whose life was threatened in his experience. And now we know from Captain Guy Gruders that um, maybe those weren't the most tragic moments of their life. Maybe they were the greatest moments of grace and blessing that they could possibly have experienced. Yes. Well, let's let's uh, begin the discussion on um, the um, Evangelical Council's uh, Francis, because uh, we won't get through the the balance of our points here. Well, you uh, got to tell our audience what the evangelical councils are. I, I will, but let me begin with this. Today is the Feast of Transfiguration, the Transfiguration of our Lord, of course, on Mount Tabor, a uh, significant event in, in um, his life and, in, of course, the history of the Church. And what it challenges us to think about, I, I believe, um, if we are to uh, imitate our Lord and Savior, we certainly don't want to imitate just his human life, right? We want to imitate him in his glory. We want to uh, seek to pursue that holiness, that light, that beauty that we know dwells within us since uh, the kingdom of God does dwell within us. And so I want to make the case uh, uh, throughout this program that the evangelical councils are a means by which we begin to do that, uh, that they are uh, beyond being material guides and counsels and direction and protection for us. They are, in fact, a means and a road uh, to pursuing holiness and to pursuing union with God and bringing about that unity in our, in our individual person. The evangelical counsels, of course, are uh, chastity, poverty, and obedience in no particular order. We'll cover each of the three of them, and I think it's very important, most especially um, Francis and I are secular Carmelites, of course, um, and sometimes the seculars wrestle with, well, what does it mean for me to live chastity, poverty, and obedience? We won't speak about it for consecrated religious because uh, there it has a somewhat different meaning, though uh, ultimately we'll discover the meaning isn't fundamentally different. It's just manifested or lived out in a different way. But we as seculars 
are also called to live the evangelical councils, but we're called to live them uh, to our unique state in life. And we're not um, um, unable or incapable of living them to the fullest, even though we may have uh, a married life or we have uh, secular lives, we have children, whatever the case might be. We are still called to perfect ourselves through the evangelical council. Now, the reason why we're bringing up evangelical councils is because St. Raphael Kalinowski in his book, um, which is called St. Raphael Kalinowski, An Introduction to His Life and Spirituality, by um, the ICS publications. Um, he talks about the evangelical councils. But now I ask you, you mentioned the Feast of the Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. Of course, for our listeners, that was the time when Moses and Elijah appear mm-hmm. and, and the exactly. great light uh, shone on, on Christ. Christ and, is completely and, transfigured himself, and, right? And Peter and James and John are witnesses to this. So, Correct. Um, and when we come back to the break, I think you need to tell us, okay, so how do we get from the Feast of the Transfiguration to the Evangelical Councils? I'll give this hint, then we'll break away. It's uh, with regard to the Second Vatican Council. So okay. we'll come back and we'll let our listeners dwell on that for a moment. A reminder that you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. We are speaking this uh, particular program on uh, St. Kalinowski, Raphael Kalinowski, and we've just discussed, uh, Francis, his devotion to the Blessed Mother, and we picked up on his theme of unity, which we said is unity both for the human person, um, unity for the family, unity for the church. But now we want to transition from that into this discussion about the evangelical councils. And you challenged me just before we went away to the break to sort of draw that chain of logic behind uh, how is it that Kolonowski, St. Kolonowski, makes this transition for us. And let me offer you this uh, reflection that he offers. He's talking about... Um, well, first I should say that he is noted as a forerunner to the Second Vatican Council, most especially uh, the document on the decree of renewal for religious life. And, of course, we know that he uh, was studied and loved by our former pope, um, Pope John Paul II, who was very big about the Vatican Council. And so um, I like to throw that little tie in there as you go forth. Well, and his um, his focus, his spirituality, which is uh, manifested in the council documents in this way, is that he believed everybody, by virtue of our baptism, of course this is church teaching, was called not simply to uh, an acknowledgement of our faith, an intellectual assent, if you will, not simply to striving to live a good life. You know, these are the ways people, un- unfortunately, oftentimes understand um, their faith and their responsibility for living it out. He believed that, in fact, there was little difference between a consecrated religious person who makes a deliberate vow to a consecrated life and a baptized Christian. In fact, these are his words. Uh, In St. Kalinowski's view, the religious vocation appears not as something above nor even next to the Christian vocation. Rather, it is precisely the same vocation as every Christian's perfectly lived and made explicit, explicit by the profession of the evangelical councils. So uh, St. Kalinowski was a forerunner for the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. And of course, we believe um, that John Paul II had a great deal to do with that, Carol Wojtyla, um, who, um, for whom St. Kalinowski was a, a boyhood hero. And that this focus on the religious life is not limited to consecrated religious, but it is the same call for all of us who are baptized Christians by virtue of our baptism. We are called to live a life of holiness and the pursuit of perfection. Now, as is always the case, and I love John of the Cross for this very reason, he would never say anything like what I just said unless he backed it up with Scripture, right? Right. He would immediately go to Scripture and say, you know, where is that found in Scripture? Well, let's see if we can find it. In Matthew 5.48, our Lord says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, is this phrase preceded by um, for religious, or is it... Um, uh, qualified that only if you're religious or only if you're the Pope or only if you're an apostle are you to be perfect. No, Christ is giving this challenge to each of us who are baptized Christians. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is part of our baptismal promise. It's nothing new. And, of course, uh, St. Kolonoski links it directly 
uh, to the evangelical councils. Now, the linkage to the transfiguration, we are called to imitate our Lord, not just in his earthly life and in the things that he did, right? Feeding the poor, um, uh, speaking the word, uh, empathy with those who were suffering. In addition, he was, of course, uh, able to heal some of those who are suffering, and there are those with that gift even today. Um, but his physical, his material, his earthly life is a manifestation of who he was, the Son of God, and the Spirit uh, dwelling within him is the very same Spirit that dwells within us in the, in, the, in the phrase, the kingdom of God is within us. And so we are to manifest that experience of the transfiguration to the extent that we can, uh, both through our material responsibilities as well as in our spiritual life. And we can do that a lot better when we don't sin and we yeah. avail ourselves of the sacraments of the church. Yeah, and we're exactly right. We're, we're called to make progress in our spiritual life through prayer. Obviously, we talk about that through the evangelical councils, but also because the Lord gave us um, his own body and blood as a means of sustaining ourselves and the sacraments. These all serve to, to help us on this path. And living out these evangelical councils as a Carmelite, that is a deeper commitment that we make, and it is a public commitment that we make in the order of Carmel. But all are called to live an evangelical life. And so by us making this deeper commitment, we avail ourselves of a, of a deeper grace, I believe, um, because as as you step out in faith, you know that you need God's help to do everything that, that ever happens. So as we step out, uh, we we beg the Lord to help us to be our strength. And, uh, you know, we make the effort and we mess up and we go and beg his mercy and forgiveness. And we, we try again. We don't stop. Yeah, I, I think it's important to also point uh, this out, which St. Kalinowski tells us. I constantly remind you of this, he says, so that you don't forget that the task you have undertaken by means of your vows whether these be religious or for us as seculars uh, instituted by our baptism, is none other than the effort to tend toward perfection, that is, toward union with God. Those are directly uh, from his own writings. Um, and again, we've already quoted how he sees this as nothing different. Uh, the call to perfection as a consequence of our baptism is nothing different than the consecrated call. But we have to also point this out. We want to stress that perfection, this call to perfection, is not something that we decided on our own, is it, Francis? You and I were both called to Carmel uh, at the time. I think I may have had the misperception that, hey, I've just decided I'm going to join Carmel. That sounds like a good idea. I've done my homework. I've researched the various orders. So obviously uh, now I've, I've done that intellectual um, um, analysis and I've decided I'm going to join Carmel. And then I saw this phrase in John 15:16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give you. These evangelical counsels, this life of perfection, this transfiguration, if you will, that we're called to, is something we are called to. It wasn't a decision we made on our own, and thank God we didn't. <laughs> right. And if, we, if you are in Carmel, we know that it is not just a privilege, um, but more a responsibility. Because just think, when you introduce yourself and you say you're a Carmelite, all of a sudden people's expectations of you are different. 
than if they had not known that. So you think about that when you tell people you're a Carmelite, because we, we want to bring people to Christ. Well, let's begin to walk through the, the three evangelical councils. And I, I, I know we won't get to spend as much time on each of them as we'd like, but I want to encourage our listeners on this point, and I said it uh, just before the break, the evangelical councils of chastity, poverty, and obedience at face value um, are inherently beneficial, and we'll describe them in the material sense and how they uh, can be practiced and uh, regardless of our state in life. But they're also, as I said before, they are mystical guidance and direction for us in the spiritual life. Everything that the Lord gives us, and we have to keep this in mind, has both this worldly, this material, this earthly manifestation so that we as humans can grasp it and understand it and begin to practice it. But there's also an interior and a spiritual element to everything that we've been given. I said before, uh, Francis, we began the program this evening, you know, the Ten Commandments. Um, We look at them as rules. Many people, unfortunately, look at them as rules, as restrictions, as the you can'ts. And in fact, they are the you are able uh, is is the true understanding of the Ten Commandments. They are guides. They are direction. Uh, they are what keep us safe. They are our protection. They're also our means of manifesting the love that we have for the Lord uh, through obedience. And I've just tripped myself into the first of the three evangelical councils. Uh, but let's begin with ch- uh, chastity, actually, because it's one that I think many people wrestle with. Okay, well, I'm going to interrupt real quick. Yep. The three evangelical councils are poverty, chastity, and obedience. obedience. Mm-hmm. All right, I just want to put that out there so that people understand what that is. And we call them the evangelical councils because Jesus lived these. Correct. And so that's how we get the word council because mm-hmm. it's his life counsels us to live in imitation of him. Right. And I also want to point out uh, what John of the Cross taught me um, is that. We I didn't take- realize you were that old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's. I'm living with him <laughs> through his words in his books. Um, the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love align with these three evangelical councils, and right. they do it in this way. I just want to put this out there because when we when we uh, talk evangel about these evangelical councils. Um, we're also talking about the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. So faith is the soul of obedience. Okay? Hope is the soul of poverty. And charity is the soul of chastity. And these make a triple harmony between God and the soul, between the soul and the body, and between the body of man and the exterior world. So we want to grow in these three ways. Um, it's an easy way for us to think of how to imitate Christ. It it is. And again, this idea of moving from the external or the material into the interior or the more mystical, spiritual, if you will, um, is exactly that. Moving from the practice of chastity, which we'll describe in a moment, uh, in its fullest sense, moving from that to charity, moving from obedience to faith, and of course, moving from uh, poverty um, into into hope. Uh, and and a Saint Raphael Kalinowski says this about these three. He says, "With the vow of chastity, you have found the Lord. With that of poverty, you have assisted Him. And with that of obedience, you will never lose Him." Mm-hmm. So now that we've got that in mind, let us break it out. The promise of chastity. It's somewhat ironic that in the same year that in this country, anyway, and I would argue uh, many of the countries. 
we began what was uh, what is known today as the sexual revolution. In that same year, um, a gentleman by the name of Carol Wojtyla wrote a book that defined what beauty and responsibility. Uh, in love and in relationship is really all about. The book was entitled Love and Responsibility. Um, he speaks there about many, many things. Um, largely, the book is about the meaning of human love, human sexuality, chastity. It's a wonderful book. I strongly encourage uh, Catholics who may be wrestling with these issues, either in a relationship or uh, parents in discussing this with their children, or um, if you yourself are wrestling with some of these issues, um, again, I say I found it ironic that at a time when we as a country had begun um, really to go on a very dark path with regard to the um, the practice of chastity, our own um, uh, Carol Wojtyla, who later became Pope John Paul II, had already gifted the church with this wonderful reflection, love and responsibility. Um, and, and I think what's important about it is uh, the central theme of the book, really, which is that love chastity, charity, is not about self-actualization. He uses that term, and it's a familiar term to us. It's not about, uh, we don't engage in a relationship uh, to fulfill ourselves, although many, unfortunately, mistakenly do exactly that. They think that this woman or this man um, is a wonderful person, and they fulfill me. How many times do we hear that phrase, maybe use it ourselves? Uh, they fulfill me. They fulfill my purpose, my needs. We talk about this in the romantic sense. But um, what John Paul is arguing, of course, at the time, Carol Wojtyla, was love is not about self-actualization. It is about focusing on the self-actualization of the other. In all cases, uh, chastity calls us to focus on the other person, the other member of the relationship. Um, and he says this is a definition of love in any context, but most especially uh, we talk about this in the promise of chastity. And we must understand that the real fulfillment of the human person in love is in giving love. It is being there for the other person. Yeah, self-sacrificial yeah. love. And, and so many may be listening to us tonight. We may have read this book. We may have read other books similar to it and say, well, of course, Mark, we understand that. The reality is if we as a, as a Christian people understood this and really lived this, which is the difficult thing, we wouldn't have the high rates of divorce that we have in this country today. Right. Uh, we wouldn't have... Uh, the preponderance of of uh, issues that we have around abortion, um, around uh, broken relationships, around people living um, in in relationships uh, that are not, in fact, sacramental relationships. And I don't want to go into all the details, but I can hear the voice uh, that says, but we understand this. Of course, love is that. Of course, marriage is that. We get that. But the reality is we don't seem to really get it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all these problems. Yeah, that's one of my biggest prayers. Lord, help me get it. <laughs> it's simple and to the point. Lord, yeah, help we, me get we've it. We've said this before, but I think it's a great line. You know, it's not the verses in the Bible that I don't understand that, that frighten me. It's the ones that I do understand, <laughs> and I know I have to live. Well, um, we know that this... Um, Evangelical Council of Chastity is not dealing with just the physical body either. It's also dealing with a chaste soul. Because when you have a chaste soul, you have a pure soul, one that is pure, uh, clean, uh, no sin. And 
guess what? Only the pure of heart see God. Yeah, that's the real um, spiritual aspect of this is, you know, chastity begins by controlling, quite frankly, our sex drive, right? It, it is a effort. It is a asceticism, if you will, to control um, that natural human propensity we have for contact, right? Let's put it in its, uh, you know, most natural sense. And, and Carol Wojtyla does a wonderful job of explaining that. But then he takes it to the next level and he says, look, this practice of chastity, regardless of our state in life, for a consecrated religious, it's different, Francis, obviously, than you and I both married people um, and how we would practice chastity. But at the same time, it is an understanding that I'm always there for the other. I never use the other. I don't take advantage of the other. I wouldn't use the other as a material. I wouldn't think of that person as a material object. All of this plays out. But then he talks about something he calls mystical virginity, which has to do with this idea that we never allow our hearts to be tainted by whatever it is that in so many respects we've just talked about some of the downsides of our modern world and divorce contraception abortion and so forth um, that draw us back into uh, whether we accept this teaching or not in, in truth and he makes this case they draw us back into uh, a desire for self what we personally want um, not what the partner wants or not what we are and we'll get to obedience here in a moment but not what we are given as guidance and protection uh, from the teachings of our church but it is the lack of purity of heart it is the absence of purity of heart that draws us off that's the real gift of chastity that's the real fulfillment of this evangelical council of chastity it begins with a material uh, a physical um, asceticism, if you will, in controlling our natural drives, but to do so in a way that allows us to manifest love in the purest way and then acquire this purity of heart, which is, allows us to love our Lord in the purest way. And in St. Kalinowski's quote on this is, A jealously kept chastity finds Jesus first, reposes more closely to his heart, always listens to its beating, and will respond to him in everything. Now, great transition, the promise of obedience. This promise comes to us directly from our Lord. Again, from Scripture, he says in Hebrews 10.9, of course, um, uh, Paul writing, Behold, I have come to do your will. Now, what we are hearing here, of course, is uh, the Lord. Um, later in the garden, he says something very akin to this. But the point he's making is, in all things, we've come to do the Lord's will. Again, obedience has a material, a natural, an earthly, a worldly, if you will, manifestation. We are called to obey. People in our faith, in our modern world even, uh, or I'll say that in reverse, in our modern world, certainly uh, in our country because of some of our tradition and even in our church, don't like to hear this phrase, we are called to obey. But we are. Yes. We are called to obey in love. We are called to obey um, um, in faith. We are called to obey because there isn't uh, a single person who can understand all of what the Lord has given us in the teachings of the church. Some things we are simply called to obey. And it is for our protection. It is for our guidance. Um, we see obedience as restrictive. We see it as constraining. But in fact, it is our very freedom that we are given the call to obedience. And when we think of the opposite, disobedience, we think of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, and we think of what, you know, Lucifer, the 
the angel of heaven cast out because of disobedience. So, you know, we can choose quite bluntly the obedience that leads to all good and disobedience that leads to not so nothing good. <laughs> well, and again, as we make this transition from the material, from the worldly, from the earthly, obedience is the quick and charitable and immediate response to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to practice, you know, the analogy I like to use is that of a soldier being trained, right? Uh, we are both uh, former military, Francis, so we understand this concept. You're given a, a process, and you're told to do it again and again and again, and you repeat it. And at some point, you begin to question even the logic behind why you're doing it. It doesn't seem right. to make sense. But, you know, your, your drill sergeant or your officer or whomever uh, you're subject to simply says, do it, do it, do yeah, it. Yeah. Dig that hole over there yeah. and put it over there. Yeah. Then dig that hole over there yeah. and put it back over there. In, t- in time, you will understand. Of course, um, now fast forward into the unfortunate circumstances we find ourselves in in, in some of these uh, foreign countries. And, and look at the history of our, of our uh, nation at war. The reality is that we need individuals trained well enough in the, if I can, the ascetical practices of simply obeying that when the time for spiritual warfare comes, they respond in the way that they should respond. Right. It's become repetitive. It's become responsive. It's become immediate. And because we've grown in humility, too, uh, and trust. And that's why this is related to faith. Um, obedience and faith are related because in faith we obey. And so as we grow in our humility, we have the faith that God will lead us in the way he wants us to go. And we begin to give up our own perception of how things ought to be. Our limited perception. Very limited perception. You know, the, the analogy is always used of dig the hole here and move the dirt over there and then put the dirt back where the hole was. And we all laugh at that. But the fact is we don't need to know. The Lord has told us this is the path, and he's given us the church as our guide and our counselor and our instructor, and we need to understand the church's teachings. We need to incorporate those teachings into our life. We don't need to peel back the theological justification for them. I want to give just two quick scripture verses that back up this argument of Christ, um, again, manifesting the very behavior that he wants us to imitate. Although, from Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he, the Lord, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. He learned obedience. What does that mean? Christ didn't need to learn to do the right thing. Uh, This obedience stems from his demonstration of profound humility. What's the scripture verse that supports that? In Philippians 2.7, it says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. So Christ, through his humility, which you just mentioned, demonstrated his obedience, an obedience to the Lord's will through faith that carried him to the obedience in the spiritual sense where he emptied himself and became exactly what he wants us to become, humble, loving, obedient, and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So if we want to be like Christ, we obey. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we got to get to poverty. Well, here, humility that we've just described, this uh, uh, manifestation of Christ fulfilling for our benefit, by the way, um, this living out of obedience. Here we see humility, but humility manifested as love. We must have humility uh, to willingly accept the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what Francis just said. And this leads us to the promise of poverty. Poverty also has two perspectives, and we've got to understand and break these down. First, there's this simple effort to detach ourselves from material things. Everybody understands that. 
this does not mean that we must withhold our basic necessities that sustain life or that we must literally give away all of our means of support. Rather, we must continue to minimize our dependence on material things that distract us from God. And now we loop back to the same chastity, Francis, in this purity of heart. Anything that draws us away from our love, our devotion, our our uh, uh, desire to fulfill God's will in everything, anything that draws us away from that, that's where we must begin to practice poverty. In the material sense now, we must get rid of those things. Uh, no serving can serve two masters, from Luke sixteen thirteen, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What's the second aspect of this uh, poverty, though? Well, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, exactly. Matthew says in 5, uh, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which we all should be aiming for. <laughs> That's the interior poverty. This is where we, we practice not only, and in a very real sense, I mean, we shouldn't minimize this. In a very real sense, material poverty should be practiced. It should be um, um, engaged in as an ascetical practice to teach us the interior poverty, the poverty of spirit, which makes us uh, like our Lord and predisposes his uh, intervention in our lives. Well, uh, I knew we'd be rushing to finish, so Francis, finish us out with prayer this evening. And this comes from the words adapted from St. Raphael Kalinowski. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We entrust our task of growing in the evangelical councils to our most holy mother, the Virgin Mary, under her maternal care. If there is anything to correct, let it be corrected once and for all. May the good that is done continue to increase. Toward this purpose, may God's love flood our souls along this earthly life and finally lead us to the fountain of love that is to God himself in eternity. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again for another evening with Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. Until next week, God bless. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations.